Hi folks, and welcome to another edition of the Passel CMO Series podcast. Now, the transition to CMO is a pivotal moment and offers the opportunity to drive growth, develop teams, and lead change. Now, on the flip side, taking that step can also uncover vulnerabilities and requires a level of awareness and intentionality that is central to a successful leadership. Now, today we're delighted to welcome Tom Helm, who's the Chief Marketing Officer at Smith Gamble Russell. We're going to dive into the learning and transformative approaches Tom has taken over the last 18 months in the CMO role, and indeed his advice for others taking on that mantle of Chief Marketing Officer. Tom, thank you very much. Welcome to the PASL CMO Series podcast. Eugene, thanks for the intro and good to reconnect with you. Glad to be here. <laughs> A pleasure. Tom, we're going to jump straight in and I want to actually you know, start where you are today. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to date and indeed your journey to become the chief marketing officer at Smith Gamble Russell? Sure, yeah. Uh, so believe it or not, uh, I worked for in-house for law firms for nearly for 22 years now, which is hard for me to believe. My I started out, my first role was a generalist with Rogers Towers, a law firm based in Jacksonville, Florida, where I worked for about 10 years. And it's funny, I knew nothing about legal marketing, as I think a lot of us did not around that time when we first started out, at least. And at that firm, I earned my stripes by doing it all, which I think a lot of us, particularly those of us who started out as generalists, did. And uh, moved to Atlanta about 12 years ago to work with a litigation boutique for a couple of years before moving on to Brian Cave, which as many of you know, is now Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner. And I worked there for about eight years. Uh, yeah. Several of those years as director of business development. And now I'm with Smith Gambrell where I've been for about a year and a half as CMO. It, you've been a year and a half CMO. And when you and I've spoken before, we spoke at length about, you know, how you hit the ground running, it's a step up, the change in role, you know, it's a very different uh, proposition, a different a different job type. Can you tell us a bit about your main priorities in those first 12 months and, and actually how you approach those? Yeah, that's a, appreciate the question, Eugene. So the first 12 months were probably some of my most challenging um, in that primarily because I was in recruiting mode and uh, recruiting as many of us on this call have faced trying to build out a team not only retention but um, recruiting and that and the latter was the most challenging for me it's been a hot job market i'm based in atlanta however we have um, marketing professionals and business development professionals in chicago as well and i'll talk a little bit more about our firm's merger with freeborn and peters in a little bit but anyway those are two competitive markets um, we even looked at new york and that's probably the most competitive. And so during my first 12 months, identifying people to serve in specific roles in the team was by far, hands down, the biggest challenge. And then um, the merger seven months into my time with Smith and Rome, mm -hmm. uh, that created a whole new set of challenges, yet opportunities at the same time. Yeah. And when I spoke to you before, you talked about you had to come in and build up the BD function. I think you said to me it was actually pretty challenging not just to find the right people but to convince them that yours was the place to come and work and it was a, a job market like you hadn't experienced was that the hardest or most challenging part of your journey so far in, in this CMO role or was there something different 
Yeah, I think it's finding, yeah, you raised a good point. The business development team, as we had talked about before, was tough because that's out of our profession or in our profession, that's that and marketing technology specialist roles. I, I believe from what I understand from recruiter contacts of mine are some of the hardest to recruit for and business development in particular, it depends on what we're looking for. For me, uh, I had to look at people who maybe are were on the more junior end of management in order to, because things were so competitive, not just from a salary standpoint, but in terms mm-hmm. of flexibility of remote work and that sort of thing, we have a hybrid um, work environment where people can work from home for a couple of days, but some firms were offering as uh, you know, fully remote work and we just couldn't compete with that. We want um, some people in the office. And I think for business development roles, that's, that's important. It's not the only thing that's one of the factors we were looking for. So between competing on salary with some global firms and competing with uh, remote work that added a whole new layer um, to the competitive nature of recruiting for these roles. So the beauty mm-hmm. is with the help of um, outside recruiting contacts, we were able to find some fantastic candidates and we've since filled not only two business development manager roles, but two business development coordinator roles. Um, two out of those four roles came from uh, legal, whereas the other two came from finance and healthcare. So uh, the point there is we have to, uh, shift our thinking when recruiting in terms of finding talent where places that may not be so obvious and yeah. in roles that may not be so obvious that translate well into um, in-house legal marketing or business development professionals or roles. And also change your idea of what a good BD team looks like, which I, I imagine everyone in the industry has been doing for a while. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Smith Gambrell has had my predecessor and um, the team historically have had a couple of business development coordinators over the years. But to your point, fully functional is absolutely what I was trying to accomplish and create. And we've done that. Knockwood, as of today, we have a fully staffed um, marketing, communications, and business development team. And I'm, you can't see me now, but I'm uh, doing fist pump nonstop every day because we finally have the <laughs> team. And so it's not just filling the roles. It's um, making sure you have the right people and that they take on responsibilities that they want and that I had sold them on taking when interviewing for their roles mm-hmm. and um, working together where, you know, frankly, they're making an impact or we're all making an impact where our internal stakeholders see a noticeable difference and they see the value add because it's not lost on me. When you add headcount, you need to prove your worth. And so regardless of one size, you know, one's team size, and we have four, again, business development professionals, we want to prove value every day. And uh, we're always talking about uh, ways to get on the front foot in order to do that. It could be as easy as picking up the mm-hmm. phone and having a conversation or going to visit them instead of sending an email, or it could be providing things that they weren't even looking for or asking for. Um, and, and so we're always looking for ways to do that, not just to prove everyone's worth. It's more than that. It's um, really that uh, helping move the needle, particularly on the revenue generation and, and business expansion front. So we're, we're dialed into that now that we have the right people touching yeah. the right projects. You mentioned something earlier, which I thought was interesting. You talked about the role for which they're hired. And I wanted actually to loop it back to sort of that first question. You were 
your expertise and the role you occupied was very much in that business development space. You're now in the chief marketing officer role. Can you tell me a bit about what you have had to change in your role, your approach to it, how different that's been? Because you are still a very new CMO. What's been the biggest difference for you? Is it, you know, is it, is it hands off? Is it taking a step back? Is it having to get roll the sleeves up? What's been the main difference? Yeah, that's a great question, Eugene. Uh, I'm glad you asked that. It, yeah, frankly, I've had to unlearn some muscle memory that has developed over the years. You know, my prior role at Brian Cave, yes, I was a director of business development. I was one of several. Uh, and my area of responsibility in the teams was uh, corporate and finance transactions. And that in that department alone, we had over 600 lawyers and a, a team of 12 people. And there were times when things got, we were either thinly staffed or just projects were overloading the team. I would jump in, roll my sleeves up, work on RFPs or whatever I needed to do. And we all do that in different ways on different projects where needed. And even when I joined Smith Gambrell as CMO, we were vastly or woefully understaffed. And um, so that was, I had to do the same here just to keep the ship afloat in a lot of ways, you know, when, good opportunities come in the door by way of RFPs or whatever they may be that require a lot of time and attention. I had no choice. And frankly, all of the team members had no choice to lateral mm -hmm. into areas where it wasn't necessarily our, uh, within our scope of responsibilities, what, but we did needed to do what we needed to do to get the job done. So all that to say, you know, over the years, yes, I've, worn more of the business development hat and been in those roles at different firms. Uh, but now I don't have time for that. And frankly, I don't want to do that at this point in my career. So I guess for those listening, if, if you know, for those of us who are in transition and want and aspiring to be in certain roles or like me who are in a first time, first chair role, uh, there are some things we have to get used to delegating and giving our team members, certain team members an opportunity to shine in their respective areas. And so for me, I've had to take a step back and not just, you know, I, yes, I'll roll my sleeves up and happy to get in the trenches with anybody at any time that's needed, but that is not why the firm hired me. And that's not what I want to be doing at this point in my career. And people need an opportunity to shine themselves. So for example, if mm -hmm. there's a practice group or industry group call and the head of that group invites me to join, I pull in a member of the team to do that. And instead of me, I don't always have to be on those calls, nor should I be. Uh, because again, each each team member has a, um, and wants an opportunity to shine on their own. So anyway, that's that's been a big lesson learned for me. I know that sounds obvious, but until you're in the role, you truly don't know what it's like. And so I've had to not only mm -hmm. unlearn that muscle memory, as I said, but also pay attention to the higher level, truly strategic things that the firm has hired me to do and be that uh, voice on behalf of the team to firm leadership where needed. I think that's quite a nice segue into the, sort of the next section. You mentioned the merger and I'd like you to maybe weave a bit of that and the challenges and, and actually what you're trying to achieve there in this next answer, because you mentioned that you've had to change your approach on learn muscle memory. Could you maybe let us into a little bit of what your goals are, both as a leader, both professionally, personally, but also as a team for the next six, 12, 18 months? Because I remember you saying to me before, 
and um, we've got the final piece of the puzzle and you just offered a, a rollout to someone i think it was a bd coordinator or a manager i can't remember precisely it sounds like you've got mm-hmm. you've you've spent 18 months putting the foundations in place can you let us into sort of what's coming up yeah it, so yes you're right it was a bd coordinator she's here now and she's great we're excited to have her um so now it's now what right so it's time to get cracking as our british uh, friends like to say we uh we have the people we have the, the people in the right uh, um, seats working on the right things and so now we're still we're still on the heels of a major merger at least for a firm of our size so uh, smith gambrell was approximately 275 lawyers prior to the combination with Freeborn and Peters uh, that's based in Chicago. And when we merged with them in April, effective date was April 1st of this year, we uh, brought on another 125 lawyers or so. And that for a firm of our size, the scale of that is significant. So it, it requires, yes, a lot of resources, but through this process, we were able to write staff or right size our department but we also have a lot of work to do. You know, every day we're learning new things about our new colleagues and, and they are of us. Uh, we are one firm now and, and integrated as much as we can be. But for those of us who've been through uh, a law firm merger of any size uh, and many people listening, I'm sure on this call have uh, realize how much time and effort it takes to integrate people, processes, systems, all of that is a heavy lift. And I view my role and the role of our team, particularly the business development uh, professionals on my team as dot connectors within the firm because everybody's learning about their new colleagues' expertise and experience in different sectors and practices, et cetera. Um, We've got a Mm -hmm. lot of learning to do that continues and we've got a long ways to go and um, so those are the, you know, it's an example of something that we're continuing to do. So over the next, you know, that, that's something I'm absolutely focused on and will continue to be focused on over the next 12 months. That will be important mm-hmm. because I remember speaking with a colleague at a prior firm who had been through two global mergers and uh, Brian Cave mer- merging with Berman Leighton Paisner, uh, which was a London based firm. Uh, I, I think I said some made some ignorant comment. Oh yeah, well you know a year from now we'll be the dust will settle. We'll be integrated. And she laughed. I, we were on the phone and she laughed in my ear and said, "Tom, you're kidding. This will take two, three, if not four years." Now I don't know how well the firm that firm is integrated because I'm not there anymore. But my point is that it's a it's a long game, and um, but that continues to be something we're focused on right now. Definitely. So then I just going back to those goals and I, and I want to start feeding into how you report that and measure that internally. You you just mentioned there that we in our role are the connectors. And I remember you talking to me before, but, you know, we're obviously we've gone through this merger. We want to increase our visibility in the Chicago market. There's some key groups that the leadership and I have identified. And, and this is how we want to attack it over the next 18 months. Can you talk about how when you're connecting those dots, how do you report that? And how are you actually sharing in success? Because coming back to one of your previous answers, you want to show the value of your team. Your team's grown rapidly and you have to be able to report that success. Can you talk a little to that as in 
what you're again you, you mentioned the success of the merger and, and how important that is on a more sort of day-to-day uh, -day level can you mention a little bit about what you're reporting how you're working with partnership how you're demonstrating that return on investment because obviously being you into your role you want to impress as much as possible yeah thanks for that question eugene yeah i think the a couple things on that one is to hear about successes we have to be tuned into what's going on around the firm and uh, that happens you know somewhat organically or naturally through joining practice group calls or you know the team is involved in pulling together proposals or doing being a, a part of uh, pitch prep meetings things like that but we also have to ask you know ask each other so we're not even though i view us as being uh, integral and connecting dots we're not always the the hub in fact often we're um you know one one piece of a, a larger puzzle and we have to ask uh, lawyers what they're working on with whom they're working and which office which practice and then ask them the results or follow-up of any meetings or proposals that have gone out uh, and always you know get get that real-time feedback from our lawyers as much as we possibly can and and my view is uh, I need to be you know, in the in that mix and so does the team. So we learn about those things. And so I join, for example, to answer your question, I join partner calls every month mm -hmm. where I'll feedback uh, some of the successes going around the firm. Uh, I will join our practice group and industry team leader calls to do the same. And, and often on those calls, that's where I'll learn about things that I didn't know about. And so I need to take that information back to the team. So it's a combination of things. And so we do log those um, and track those. I have a, a, a what I call uh, post-merger wins and successes. And it's a pretty informal document, but it's a way to keep all of those things. And so um, when our managing partner does the state of the firm address at the annual meeting or retreat, he will share some of those successes at you know not only at the at the event with our lawyers but periodically uh, throughout the year with staff as well because that's we often talk about attorneys there are some successes that staff members legal assistants paralegals are involved with as well and i think all of those are important things to capture and share and report with others as much as we reasonably can Mm -hmm. uh, on the regular so that's my view yeah so just a, a few of the things you've said there it's it, it, coming back to this theme of being very intentional with your time and intentional with how you demonstrate your return on investment you're not you know trying to join every single call you're giving your team the success and a platform and the foundation to be the best versions of themselves but a lot of what you've just said there is is talking about just being very deliberate and consistent how have you become like that i think because that's actually an interesting you, you mentioned muscle memory that's a very deliberate thing which you do naturally maybe without thinking about it and sounds quite authentic the other thing i think you do very well is you're quite vulnerable in saying i don't know this or i need the, my other team to be the ones to shine i don't need to be the one on that call listening to this or reading through the pitch proposal could you talk a little bit about sort of those two key themes and actually i imagine they would be a pretty important piece of advice that you would offer to anyone and to anyone looking to build out a team because 
you're basically saying, I don't know everything and we need to do this together and we need to share in this success. Could you talk a little to that, please? Yes, Eugene, I'll try to unpack a couple of things you just talked about. One, in order to provide that value and to get on the front foot and be proactive and all of those things I truly believe in and want us to do, uh, we have to be honest and um, help set expectations. So sort of, I'll get back to your question, but it reminds me of something you asked me earlier on this call is, what's been one of the hardest, what have been the hardest things the first 12 months, one of which is setting or resetting expectations. So when I joined, as I said, we had a small marketing team, the firm was smaller and, and Smith Gambrell, or you may hear refer to the firm as SGR uh, on occasion. SGR has grown quite quickly in a relatively short period of time. And the marketing team and the firm used to be much smaller and would do just about everything, not everything, but almost everything that they were asked and, and gladly. And I think that was great to some degree to help, you know, build and strengthen relationships with internal clients. This preceded me. Uh, but since I've gotten here, I realized we can't say yes to everything and, and we're not going to. And I think most of our attorneys understand mm -hmm. that if we give them some context and I have what, don't have to be difficult conversations, but direct conversations with them. Um, they understand. And as long as something gets done, it might be collaborating with another administrative department or staff members, legal assistants, whatever it is, or redirecting or creating a new process. That's all critically important and something mm -hmm. I've had to do during my year and a half. And the reason I bring that up is we have to create space to carve out that because it's easy for me to sit here and say if people are listening probably rolling their eyes being proactive yeah right how do we have time to do that well for us in order to do that i've had to create that time by getting taking some things off a lot of people's plate and so we're always having i'm always having those conversations and um, so that that helps with that proactive proactive piece tom to tie that together a bit of an annoying question, but do you have any one or two bits of advice that you would give to any other professionals looking to, to take that next step? Because you just talked about being very open and intentional and honest. Any, any advice to anyone looking to take that same approach to being in, in the C-suite? Yeah, there's a, there's quite a few things I have to say about that, Eugene. Uh, one, I, have not, I did not get into this role on my own. I had a lot of help along the way. Uh, by one, I've learned a lot, a great deal from the people on my team, colleagues in the marketing department and business development department over the years. Um, second is peer groups. Uh, I have a huge, I know this not, is not a legal marketing association call. However, I have a lot of peer friends and people who have developed deep, meaningful relationships through LMA over the years who have helped me along the way and still do to this day. So, um, you know, earlier we were talking about being intentional and, and um, you know, getting how I got into this role and all of those things, you know, these aren't just things I've learned on my own or made up. I've learned them from people who have been there, done that. I've learned them from people who were um, taking their first CMO role along with me. And, and in fact, um, there are a number of people, at least a dozen I can think of, who are in their first CMO role. And we chat informally 
from time to time. Um, Passel, not that you asked me to give a plug, but uh, Passel has been integral in facilitating some of those introductions and conversations, which I'm grateful for. Uh, so my piece of advice, if I can give it, is to surround yourself by or with people who um, are smart people, capable people, have been there, done that. And so you don't have to go it alone. You don't have to uh, create anything anew. Uh, others have gone before us and will come up behind us and we have to surround ourselves with people who, who know what they're doing. And so if you don't have a formal peer group or virtual or in-person roundtable that you're a part of, then create one. And it doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to be paid. Um, if you don't know enough people, ask, because I guarantee you there's one degree of separation. Somebody's going to know somebody uh, that we should be linked up with for whatever reason. So anyway, that was a long-winded way of saying, um, yes, I got to where I am today by um, through experience and I know what I'm doing, mm. but uh, I'm a better person because I surround myself with people who know what they're doing. The other thing I'll, I'll give you a little insider, even our, our listeners insider tip on at least um, something mm -hmm. that's been valuable to me and invaluable to me uh, it's the first time i've ever done this in my career but it's hands down one of the most important things i've ever done is earlier this year i hired an executive coach um, i didn't ask my firm to pay for it because i wanted this investment to be mine and i didn't want them asking me mm -hmm. uh, what the firm is getting out of it i could but i'm not going to uh, but that's been a wise investment on my part because um she and I tend to talk about two things. One, what's hot right now on my mind, things that are keeping me up at night. Uh -huh. Two is um, helping me shore up some things that I may not be strong in. And frankly, that's the latter is really why I engaged her services in the first place. I know, for example, um, that I need to stop and slow down and look at the data, uh, look at the details before making a decision because I'm somebody who just jumps right in. If we talked about it, good, let's go. Uh, but I've learned some things through her that are a bit more programmatic to help me slow down and um, take into account a number of considerations while still being decisive. So anyway, those are a few things that I've been focused on and, and have helped me, and I encourage others to consider um, at this point in their careers, particularly um, to help get them to the next level or even be better at the roles they're in now completely it's almost time you're saying the vulnerability is as much is, is as important as the confidence it's the confidence to know what you're good at and take make the right decisions but it's being vulnerable enough to say hey i don't know everything here and to engage be that an executive coach be it your peers be it people outside and a vendor whoever that may be um and actually treat you know give the same advice that you give anyone else don't try and do, don't try and go it alone that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right, Eugene. I, I got to where I am because I know my stuff, but at the same time, I don't know everything, right? Or there have been, or I should say, and there have been times where I, you know, head hits the pillow at night. It's like, oh my gosh, am I making the right decision? Or, you know, you, you, you sort of question your um, yeah. calls on certain things and, and um, therefore uh, lack of confidence can creep in, but you wake up, as soon as I have coffee in my hand the next morning, I'm good. I'm golden. But in order to, to really, really um, 
uh, feel good about certain decisions or a, a path I'm taking, many times I have to talk with other people about that. And I think, you know, I may have had a good idea, uh, yeah. but talking with others can make, make it great. And sometimes the people you talk with are um, not necessarily your vulnerabilities, but it's okay to be vulnerable and open and candid and honest and how, and, and your response could be, I don't know what to do. What do you think? And asking your, your team members, even yeah. that question or peers, like you said, um, so I think it's it, all that to say we can't, nor should we go it alone. And I don't care how successful somebody is or aspires to be there. They've had help along the way. And I think that's a healthy thing to do. I think that's a very nice note to end it on Tom. Um, thank you very much. If okay with you, I'm going to keep you for 30 seconds, a minute longer, just to do a little quick fire round. Hope I can grab you for one more minute. Yeah, sure. Love to. What is your favorite business and non-business book? Eugene, I, yeah, that's a good question. Um, my favorite business book, or at least among my favorite business book, is Difficult Conversations. Um, and I think the subtitle is How to Discuss What Matters Most. And there are three authors, um, Doug Stone, Bruce Patton, Sheila Heen. Uh, that book's been out for a while now, certainly well over a decade. Uh, but I highly recommend that book. Um, if any of my former colleagues, team members are listening to this, they're probably rolling their eyes because I routinely brought up the book all the time and even bought it for them. Uh, I don't know about my favorite non-business book, but a recent one I read was The Halifax Explosion, uh, which I found fascinating. And um, it's a non historical excuse me historical nonfiction. i encourage people to read that it's a it's a page turner i'll look it up tom what was your first job oh gosh my first job was cutting grass in my neighborhood uh, my father bought a uh, <laughs> a lawnmower for me and let me borrow his weed whacker and i went around made a decent amount of money doing that and my first i'm using air quotes professional job or i should say paid job with benefits was uh, serving as a gopher for a plumbing company and i will not get into the details of what all that involved on this call we'll save that for episode two <laughs> exactly exactly well it's a nice segue into the next one what makes you happy at work in your current role we'll say rather than your first professional role <laughs> oh gosh i uh, the people i work with i know that sounds obvious but i think many of us Many listeners can relate, you know, surround ourselves with smart people, but people, at least for us and, and our team, we work hard, but we also laugh at ourselves and have good belly laughs. And so definitely the people. Couldn't agree more. Uh, what are you listening to at the moment? Could be podcast, music, audiobook, anything in between. Oh, gosh, uh, a couple podcasts. Uh, one I always have going is Tim Ferriss. Um, a number of people probably have heard of Tim Ferriss. Anyway, he interviews a lot of high-performing athletes, business people. And so there are, I always find some good nuggets of information and new ways of thinking to learn from. The other I'm listening to is, the other podcast I'm listening to is Coaching for Leaders with Dave uh, Stackowike, I think is how you say his last name. And a uh, non-professional one I'm listening to is Song Exploder, which breaks down songs with through interviews with artists um it's pretty fascinating i recommend it 
Nice. Check that out. Last question. Favorite place to visit and why? Ooh, hands down for me as well as my wife is Point Reyes National Seashore, which is in California, just north of San Francisco. It is um, a magical place and it's one of nine national seashores in the U.S. And so highly recommend it for anyone. Uh, it's a great place to go on hikes, day, uh, day hikes, um, visit the shore and that sort of thing. So it's absolutely beautiful. Wicked. Tom, we're going to leave it there, but just to say thank you very much for your time and uh, for being part of the Pastel CMO Series podcast. Eugene, I really appreciate your time and the opportunity. It's good to be here. Pleasure.